ask you this morning, have you ever invited anyone to come and see something? Like, come and see something new, come see something interesting. You ever invite anybody to your house? You ever got something new? Yes, yes, like you're like, come see this, come do this, yeah. Um, anybody ever invite, invite anybody to apple butter and say, come and see what we do at apple butter? You ever invited anybody to do that? Yeah, right? Um, Daryl told me yesterday morning, um, I was still in the bed, <laughs> and he was like, Daryl, he was, he was up already, and he said, he said, you should come and see the sunlight hitting the leaves this morning. You know, come and see them. It's just beautiful. And I was like, okay. Um, sometimes Daryl uses it as an encouragement to me when we're hiking, and, you know, Daryl and I hike at very different paces, I know that shocks y'all, right, that we, we hike at different paces. But um, Daryl likes to, he, he goes ahead of me a little bit, especially on inclines. And if he thinks that I'm getting a little f- too far behind, like he knows my normal behind, right? I'm always behind him so far. But if it's getting, the, the thing is getting a little thing, a little wider, a little bigger there, he will, he'll get up to a view or something. And then I'll hear him, he'll be like, Pam, come and see this view. Come and see this. You've got to, and he's just, he's, he's like, in other words, he's saying, hurry up. But um, <laughs> But it's a nice way of trying to convince me that there's something beautiful that's up ahead, you know. And then sometimes we even say come and see when there's, you know, things that are not so great. Um, it might be storm damage or it might be from an accident or, you know, something that's happened. And we're like, come and see this. Look at, look at this damage that's happened there. But in general, it's usually given as an invitation for someone to share something with you, right? I mean, you want to share something with them and you want them to come in and share with you. And so today, I'm going to invite you to come and see something a little bit differently, hopefully, today. Um, I'd like for us to share together in a story that you've probably heard dozens of times, the story of the Samaritan woman and Jesus. And as we look today, though, I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit differently with me. We typically look at Bible stories, and we look and see ourselves, and we try to relate ourselves to those people. So typically, when we look at this story, we look at that woman, and we say, oh, I can identify with that, or I see myself, you know, doing those same things, things like that. But today, I would like for us to look with a more Middle Eastern lens. So that was a, that's a very American way to look at things, to look at things. We're going to look kind of from a Jewish point of view, and we're going to look at the, the Bible, the Bible story, and look and see what does this story tell us about Jesus? Because really and truly, this whole book is about him. The whole book points to him. Everything in it, every story, every verse, everything connects back just to telling us more about Jesus. So I want us to focus more on Jesus than the woman. So if we, but of course, obviously we're going to have to talk about her, but we'll look at his. And so, you know, I have to go a little bit sixth grade language arts teacher on you just a little bit. So I teach my children to, when we look at stories, we look at two things when we're looking at a character traits. We look at how, what, how you would describe someone. And we use direct characterization, which is what the character says about themselves. And then we use indirect characterization, which is how everybody else responds to the, the character, um, how their actions are. Anything that's not ver, you know, verbal spoken things becomes indirect characterization. So, so we're going we're gonna to take this passage and we're going to look at it from, from those, two, those two perspectives as we're looking. So I am going to read quite a bit to you this morning. So just know, right? Y'all can settle in. Y'all, I know you're tired. It's all right. Just, just take a minute. All right, so I'm going to read from, I'm reading from the NIV and reading John chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 3 through 29. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. We're going to come back to that. He had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, 
sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He said to her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? If you would bow your heads with me, we'll open with a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, I pray, God, that as we come before you this morning, Lord God, as we, as we seek to read this story, Lord, in a different way, God, would you just reveal yourself to us through this story? God, may we focus, Lord God, not on ourselves, Lord, and, and not, not on our, our personal issues, Lord God, so much, God, but that we would look at this story and see how good you are. How wonderful you are, Lord, this morning. God, would you speak to us this morning, God, and just show us and reveal to us, Lord, during our time together this morning. Lord God, we thank you and praise you, Lord. Thank you so much, Jesus. Thank you so much. Amen. 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 So we're going to kind of step through each verse here, kind of little groups of verse in here. So in verse 4, I'm going to start off. And remember, we're trying to figure out what do these things tell us about Jesus? What do we know about him from his actions and from kind of looking at indirect characterization first? Um, He had to go through Samaria. So just to give you a quick little geography lesson, I don't teach geography, so you don't have to worry about this one being really long, but Galilee's up here at the top of our map, okay? Samaria's in the middle, and Judea's down here at the bottom. And Jesus is down, they're in Jerusalem, they're down here in the bottom. He's going to Galilee, so Samaria's in the middle. So a lot of times, Jewish people, so there for 700 years, there's been animosity between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. Um, Samaritans are a group of people that are a blended race. They were, part, they were part Jewish and they were part Assyrian. And they also, so they kind of separated themselves after they had intermarried there. They also only believed the first five books of the Bible. They only took the, for the words of Moses. And then they decided to, this is going to shock y'all, um, 
to participate in Baal worship. You know, already, right? I mean, like everything. If you've been in our Sunday school class, you'll know, you're like, yes, everybody seems to, to do that. So they, they're, they're a different religion. Everything, Jewish people felt like they were unclean. They, they had issues with them. And so sometimes they, some of them would go through, but a lot of times Jewish people would, traveling that route, would go, so here we are in Jerusalem. They would go across, cross the Jordan River, Fought, go all the way up the east bank of the Jordan River and then cross the river again. I mean, we're talking majorly out of their way to avoid even being in contact with Samaritans. I'm not talking about like when you're in the grocery store and you see somebody that you know is going to talk to you longer than two minutes and you take that extra aisle. I don't mean that. I mean, they were going hours out of their way to avoid having any contact with him at all. They truly, you know, nothing. But Jesus, it says he had to go there. That tells me two things. One, Jesus was obedient. The Father and the Holy Spirit were sending him there, and he was obedient. He was like, I have to go. I don't, it didn't matter that if I don't want to or which way I'm going in this one, I have to go. The second thing it tells me about Jesus is he's intentional. He went there with a purpose. It was not a chance encounter. It was not a surprise to Jesus when she was there at the well. It didn't just happen to happen. She was the purpose. She was the reason he went that way that day. Every interaction you have with Jesus is intentional. You are not an afterthought. It's not something where he was like, oh, there she is today. Let me go ahead and bless her today. No, 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 it's not that. It is intentional. He is intentionally coming after you in every way, in every season. He is intentional. I'm going to move to verse 6 there. And in verse 6, it tells us Jesus was tired and he sat down. <clears throat> now, there's an obvious connotation right there, right? He was tired. They had walked a long journey. We find that it was the middle of the day. It was hot. He sat down when he was tired. Now, that could preach a whole different sermon, which really doesn't go with what I'm talking about today. But sit down when you're tired. <laughs> sit down. Jesus did. Jesus sat down when he was tired, and he took a little break. He didn't stay down. He didn't, he didn't stay out of church for a month. But, and I'm going to say just, he sat down, right? It's okay. It's okay to sit down when you're tired. But the reason Jesus sat down there, he was waiting for her. He was waiting for her. He knew she was coming. And he was waiting there for her. He wasn't, it wasn't just that he was tired. We can't just take that. But the other thing is, Jesus is already there. So even though he's waiting on you, it's not that he's waiting because you're late. He's just ahead of the game. He's always waiting. Wherever you're going, whatever the situation is, he's already there. I mean, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, right? That he is already there. He's already been there. He's already gone. The next thing Jesus does is she shows up. So here she is, a woman coming at the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, by herself. And we'll get to that a little bit more. But Jesus asked her for a drink of water. He, he asked her just, you know, she comes up. And we look at that and we're like, right, he was thirsty. She had water, big deal. No, like, like so, so much of a big deal here. Um, there's multiple barriers that Jesus is crashing through at this time. It is like he's obliterating some cultural norms that, that, that are established during this time. Number one, she's a woman. And men did not have long conversations independently, just man with anyone who wasn't their immediate family, usually even in their own household. So he's kind of breaking a taboo there. He's talking to her, but he's talking to her. He's, he has a conversation full on. 
And then the other part is that she's a Samaritan. And as I mentioned before, Samaritans were considered unclean. And I, it's, I read some things, and it was just really interesting to me that the Jewish people, not only did they consider the Samaritans unclean, and yes, they were worshiping other gods, there, there was all that to it, but they actually believed that Samaritan women from the time of birth were unclean to them. So more so, they got the Samaritan men, like, we're already mad at y'all, we don't, you know, we, we're, we're against everything y'all do, which I'm not saying that all that was wrong, but the way they treated them was wrong. <laughs> but for women, they were considered unclean. You know, they, they shouldn't even touch them or, t- or anything with them from the moment they were born. From the moment she was born, Jewish people looked at her differently because she was a woman and she was a Samaritan. So she was wearing all of that from the very beginning. And then I'm just assuming Jesus did not have his hydro flask. I'm assuming he did not have a little collapsible camping cup in his pocket there somewhere hidden. And so when he asked for a drink of water, he was asking to drink from her vessel, from her cup that she had right there. He was asking to drink after her. So not only was he saying, was he talking to her, and then did he ask something of her, but he was willing to drink after her. He was telling her in no uncertain terms, I, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of you. I, I, don't, I don't have anything against you. We are, we are okay. Let me drink that. Let's share. Think about sharing. Like right now, and some of y'all probably thinking even now you don't want to share a cup with somebody, and that, that's okay. But, um, you know, if you have to, you know, like your immediate family, but it, you see the 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 level of what that was when he was when he was coming at him I and he was he was willing to drink after her and then it tells us a couple of other things about Jesus in this interaction Jesus spoke first she didn't she didn't speak to him first she didn't have to because you know what he's pursuing you all the time we talk about finding Jesus oh I found Jesus at this point or you hear somebody oh we didn't think about think about the the the, the little sheep in the 99 the shepherd went after that sheep. He found us, y'all. He, we, we didn't find him. He, he's always, so Jesus will speak first. He speaks first because he's always pursuing us. And then he asked her for what she had. He didn't ask her to go home and make him a meal. He didn't ask her to run to the store and bring him back a, you know, a happy meal. I mean, there, there was none of that. He didn't ask her for anything else. She had water, and that's what he asked her for. That's all he wants from you today. He wants what you already have. He's not asking you to look into your future. He's really not asking you to look into your past either. He's asking you to bring what you have today. That's all he wants. It's all he's ever wanted is just what you have. Nothing more. Nothing more. Um, I want to hang out here just for another minute. Um, Today, if the enemy of your soul, and he is the enemy of your soul. He wants your soul. And if the enemy of your soul has convinced you that you need to be more worthy, that you need to wait a few months, whatever insert lie here that he's convinced you to wait on, that, you know, until you find the right, whatever it is, I can't even, I mean, there's so many different possibilities we could pop into there. But whatever that lie is that he's convincing you to wait, to not do it, that you're not good enough yet, it's just a lie. Can I, can I just share with you just one of my personal favorite things and... Um, 
I use it personally, and you're welcome to use it. Um, you may say, you may think I'm crazier than you did before when I share this with you, but um, I, have, I have a little saying that I literally use, and uh, I write it down sometimes too, and I even write down just the initials sometimes because it, it sticks with me. But um, the enemy likes to pop into our minds sometimes, and he likes to, and sometimes, a lot of times, and tell us things that just are not true. I'll have an unkind thought towards someone else. I'll have an unkind thought towards myself. I'll have, you know, just, just crazy thoughts sometimes pop in, and I'm just going to let you borrow this, okay? So you can say this, you can say it out loud, you can whisper it, whatever, but just say, shut up, Satan. That's it. That's my phrase. Sometimes I even just write it out. Sometimes I write just S-U-S, and I know shut up is one word, but it just sticks more for me if I write down the whole thing. And I mean, I just, I will write it down. I'll be like, shut up, Satan, in the name of Jesus. Shut up, Satan. <laughs> you don't, you, you can't. You've you got to speak back to it sometimes, those thoughts. We talk about capturing them and, and moving them on. We want to capture good thoughts, and we want to capture those bad thoughts and send them to the curb, right? <laughs> we want to get rid of them. So let me just remind you there, Jesus is only asking for what you have right now. And so worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's coming. We, a month from now, don't worry about what you think he might be asking you to do a month from now or a year from now or six months from now, whatever the time frame. He wants you right now Right now, all that you are right now, that's all he's asking for. He goes on to tell her about living water, and we'll come back to that one because that's a direct characterization. (laughs) But he offers her living water and tells her that she'll never be thirsty. So she's intrigued, and she wants to say, you know, to say, she's like, yeah, give me some of that living water. I'll take it. So then Jesus says, go call your husband and come back. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, that's right. You've had five and the man you're living with now is not your husband. So I'll be honest, when I first, when years, for many years, when I've read this, um, what that told me about Jesus in that moment, my first thought was, wow, I mean, he just went right there, you know? I mean, he just went right for it. He went for the jugular, you know? I mean, he didn't, he didn't cut her any slack. He was just like, man, let's just get this right here. Let's go straight to it. And now I realize that's exactly, he did go straight to it. And there was a purpose and a reason for that. But before we get there, um, you know, she had been married five times at least. And I'm, I'm going to tread very carefully because that's all the facts we have. The Bible says she was married five times and she's living with a man now. So we're going to leave it at that. But we can look at some Jewish customs there. And so, again, the Samaritan people followed the first five books of the Bible. And so they would have followed the Levitical law. And so typically women could only be divorced twice and at most three times. That was pretty, that was generally, you know, then they were like, yeah, no more. You can't, you can't get married anymore. So let's just say that, I mean, that she was a widow too. She could have lost husbands. She could have, you know, so, I mean, that's five times. So even if she had been divorced the whole three times, let's just say maybe, maybe she had, you know, experienced death and then she's living with a man now. I just want us to think about that just for a second though. Um, I mean, those are five major traumas in her life. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter really, you know, what, what, what the reasons and, and which, what the actual makeup was behind it. But five times men had left her. So because women had no power for divorce. They could not ask for a divorce. They couldn't receive a divorce. Only a man could ask for it. Some scholars believe that it's even possible that she had suffered from something like infertility. And so maybe her first, maybe she had two husbands die on her, and then maybe the next three, she, maybe she was a little older. She couldn't have, she couldn't have children, possibly. I mean, like, again, all scholars say, and we're just, we're just you know, just giving some, some context possibly to that. The, the, the main idea there, though, is that is five traumas with capital T. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, that is, that is five major events in her life that have to have, you know, shaped her and, and, and changed how she looked at things. 
And then the man she was living with now was not her husband. And so we look at that now and we're like, okay, she didn't have a job, y'all. She didn't have a job to take care of herself. Everything she had depended on that man who was not willing to legally protect her. He could have kicked her out at any time. He could have told her just to hit the curb for any reason whatsoever. She had nothing. She had nothing that was truly hers in that moment. She was unprotected. She was alone. Um, you know, and we could, we, could, we could divide and dig into it and say, well, maybe it was all her fault. And maybe it was. But, you know, also maybe, maybe you know, some of those things could have happened that, that weren't necessarily possibly all, all her fault there. But she was a loner. She was an outcast. And we know that or can assume that because she was at the well by herself. And women typically drew water together. It was a very communal activity. And they usually did it in the afternoon or possibly the early morning, sometimes when it was cool during the day. So they would not have been going in the middle of the day. So I want you to think about this for a moment. She didn't have a community of women. She didn't have a small group that met on the pastor's porch that she could attend. She didn't have a prayer class, you know, a prayer, a Sunday school class or a prayer group that she could attend. She had none of that, none of those things. Jesus didn't just call out her sin. He did. He did. But he called out the greatest pain and the greatest fear in her life. He said, I know you've been left five times. And I know that now you could be left at any moment. I know you have no security. He mentioned to her the thing that she was most ashamed of, the thing that had brought her the most pain. He does call it out. He does make it known, but not to embarrass us, not to shame us, but to show us that in spite of everything, he is still pursuing us. He wants to make us whole. He wants to rescue us and restore us. And that's what he was telling her that day. He kept talking to her. He actually has the longest conversation recorded with a single individual in the book of John. So other than like his teaching his disciples or his sermons and things, this conversation with this woman is one of the longest conversations Jesus has with a single individual. So then we're going to jump down to a few more verses. So Jesus actually talks theology with her. Um, he digs in. Again, she is a woman. She is a Samaritan woman. This was so, so unusual. But don't miss her question. In verse 20, she kind of saying, she's like, well, you know, like, um, they told us that we had to worship here. My father say we have to worship here, but you Jews say we have to worship in Jerusalem. And so basically what her question was If you're telling me that this is the way and that I'm supposed to be worshiping there, I can't go to Jerusalem. I'm not allowed. I'm unclean. Not only are my people not allowed into Jerusalem, into the temple, but I'm an unclean woman. I can't even get up to the, I can't get in near the temple. She was like, so you tell me. Tell me how am I going to be able to even worship as I am right now. And Jesus so, so kindly tells her, like, the location doesn't matter. But we're going to worship in spirit and in truth. And so we are going to work in an intimate relationship and in sound biblical knowledge. Jesus reveals to her that he is the Messiah for everyone. And we'll roll back to that one in a minute. But um, so he, he leaves her then. I mean, she leaves. She leaves her water jar, the only thing she brought with her that day. I don't want us to miss that either. She brought a water jar and she left it there. She, was, she left it to run back. And tell them, come see a man who told me everything I ever did, ever did. Could this be the Christ? So just really quickly, our indirect characterization. Jesus is intentional. He's pursuing you. He's waiting for you. He's already there. Jesus only wants you. He wants you to surrender yourself today and to bring what you have. But then we're going to do just a really quick direct characterization. Let's have two more things here that Jesus shared with the woman at the well. 
Jesus tells her that basically he is the living water, that he has the source of living water. He and he alone can fill that void in our lives. In the Middle East, water is referred to as living or dead, and living water is from a well or a river, water that's moving. Dead water would have been the Dead Sea. It would have been you know, any kind of pond or lake. Anything like that would have been referred to as dead water. Jeremiah 2.13 says, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns that cannot hold water. My grandma had a cistern, and I might, I'm going to have to proof my details here, so y'all just forgive me if they're wrong right now. But um, it caught rainwater. Caught rainwater. It was runoff, okay? So it did not have a source. There was not an underground spring. There was not a well there. She didn't have running water in her house. She just had a cistern. And so, again, it just caught runoff. No direct, no direct source. Can I caution you this morning? We can come to church every single Sunday. We can sing with the praise team. We can clap our hands when the appropriate time. We can do all of those things. But if you're only receiving the runoff, because it's here, you can get runoff here. Because there is runoff from when the spirit is here and when the living water is here. And you can just get some splashes. And you can feel good about yourself in that moment. But you know what? That runoff, if you're just putting it in your own little leaky cistern that you've dug yourself, if you're digging your own cistern, your own systems of untruth, your own systems here, if you're not obeying and and going back to what the Bible tells us to do, that water is not going to stay there. You'd be lucky to make it through Monday morning traffic. Right? I mean, it's, gonna, it's going to run out. We have to let the spring of living water well up within us. We cannot dig our own cisterns. You cannot make your own truth. It will not work. It will not hold water. And then finally, Jesus told us that he is the Messiah. He told her he was the Messiah. He tells us too, but he came to forgive us of our sins. He named her source of greatest pain. He named her deepest shame, her greatest need, And her greatest fear, Jesus is not afraid of your past. He's not afraid of your shame. He's not afraid of those areas where you've been hurt. He can handle it. When he names your pain, when he names your need, he's not shaming us. He's lovingly calling us to repentance because he can heal it. Asking, we're asking that he would reveal those things to us so that we can be rescued and restored. Um, I'm going to read this final section of scripture there, um, the last few verses in, I mean, in the, of our story here. And the praise team, if you want to come on and get in place. Um, verses 39, I'm going to start at verse 39 through 42. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Do you see the difference there? I mean, she was embarrassed before she was coming by herself. And then she went back to her town and was like, it's okay. Look at what I did. Yes, I have. I've been married five times. And he said it. He knew it. He knew what was going on. She wasn't ashamed anymore because Jesus had healed her from that. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Um, when, we, when we enter in our prayer time this morning, and then, you know, the altars are always open if you'd like to join us here at the altar. But I, I'd like for us to think of a couple of things. Let's think about those characterizations of God, how Jesus showed himself to her in the story. Let's thank him this morning for being intentional, for pursuing us, for waiting on us. 
for naming our pain. Let's be thankful that he calls us out of our sin, that he doesn't leave us to wallow in it. Let's be thankful that he's willing to do that. Thank him for being that living water and, and that, that, that changes everything in our life. But then the second thing I'd like you to think is just a little bit of a challenge. We talked about living water is moving and dead water is stagnant. We should not keep this news to ourselves. We have to be able to share it. Amy, if you could show me this last thing. I'd like for you to think about a Bible teacher that I've been listening to. She uses this all the time, and her parting thing is always, let's live like a river, not a lake. I want to be alive. <laughs> I mean, I want to be alive in so many ways, but you know what? There are so many other people in our world right now who need to hear it. They need us to be a, live like a river, not like a lake. And even though this lake can be lots of fun sometimes just to hang out here and just to be all together in this one, we, as the body of Christ, have to move out sometimes. We have to live like a river in order to share the living water with others. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just come before you this morning, God, and we are so thankful, Lord God, for your blessings, God, and the ways, Lord God, that you are intentional toward us, God, Lord, that you have pursued us, Lord God, God, that you have, have just, God, you are waiting on us, God, you're already there, you've already been wherever it is that we're going, Lord, you've already been there, you've already prepared the way for us. God, I pray, Lord God, that this morning, Lord, that you would just reveal to us, Lord God, just continually how good you are, Lord, God, how great you are. God, I pray, Lord God, that we could live like a river, Lord God, and not a lake. Oh, God, that we would be able to share and to move forward. Jesus, we thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.